As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. In the studio today, I've got my Kerry, my Tharm, and my Cox. All three of them writers from The Athletic. Michael, tactics. Liam, tactics. Mark, data, sometimes tactics. Different aspects <laughs> of football analysis for different needs. The Premier League has finished, and we've got you covered today. It's a review of sorts, but I guarantee the most creative review structure that you'll have listened to or read, and it comes from a Michael Cox piece on The Athletic this week. Season review in just 10 matches. 380 games in the Premier League season, neatly summed up in just 10, which tell the best story of how every club got on this year. I don't think I've ever seen this done before in a world where there's little original content or content structures, Michael. Is this a truly original Cox, like the phrase inverted winger? Uh... It was when I did it in 2019 for ESPN. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, uh, it's your IP. Yeah, exactly. I don't think self-plagiarism is a, is a thing in that respect. So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll claim it as original. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a bit of fun. I mean, initially when I saw the title and the intro and worked out what you're trying to do here, the cynic in me thought, no, no there's no way you can do this properly you know, without cutting some corners or, or maybe conveniently ignoring important context or storylines, but impressed after reading it. So let's see how we go. Uh, we're going to rattle through it. Uh, and with hindsight, Michael, opening weekend told us what we needed to know about which two teams and why. Yeah, Manchester City beat West Ham 2-0 at the Olympic Stadium. I remember this one well because I was there covering for our Man City reporter, Sam Lee, and City were just completely dominant. West Ham barely saw any of the ball. It was their lowest recorded uh, share of the possession all season. And of course, both goals were scored by Erling Haaland. There is noticeably more room for the likes of De Bruyne on the ball and he's put Haaland in. There he goes, number two. And this one at the end of the ground where his dad's watching, his family are watching. That's the counterpunch that he brings. He just completely dominated that game. And something sticks in my head 
that is the post-match press conference when David Moyes was just talking about City. And at that point, they were pushing both fullbacks forward into midfield, which actually they didn't do that much this season. But Moyes was just saying how difficult it is to play against that system and how difficult he found it to come up with a plan uh, to basically deal with defenders moving into midfield. And of course, that was a key part of Man City's uh, approach this season in a different way, usually with John Stones moving forward. But yeah, it was just City being too good, way too good for an opponent. And West Ham, I mean, I think they've had a pretty forgettable season. I never personally thought they were in danger of relegation. I think they were always a little bit unlucky uh, not to be getting results. But uh, of course, their campaign has been all about Europe and uh, the conference final still to come. It was our first sighter of Haaland. Uh, he's, he scored a one-on-one from a De Bruyne pass, which probably at the time it felt like we would then see that copy and pasted many times. In the end, actually, he didn't score that exact goal that often. There's so many other different types of goals and back post goals, as you've written about at length, uh, Mark. It was our first flash of him. And it was also the first look at Jack Grealish 2.0. Yeah, 2.0. I mean, he's obviously got far more minutes this season than last season. I think we've said before on this podcast how Manchester City players under Pep Guardiola need often a season to truly kind of get their their feet under the table, so to speak. But I actually wrote a piece last season in Grealish's first season at City about how his underlying numbers were still very similar to his final season at, at Aston Villa. Three assists last season, seven assists in the league this season and 10 in his final season at Villa. But if you look at his underlying numbers per 90, his expected assists, 0.31 per 90 this season, it's actually ever so slightly lower than is expected to assist last season, 0.34. Wow. Now we're talking very small numbers, but if we call it, for the sake of argument, the same, mm. his output in terms of the, the assist that we're seeing is far, far stronger, but underlying numbers very, very similar, which I think is really interesting. Certainly, eye test-wise, the out-of-possession stuff as well. He has become an absolute monster on that front this season on top of quality with it. At West Ham, Liam... Obviously, a forgettable year domestically, certainly relative to their last few seasons, but still, I think, quite an interesting campaign to analyse because they've got the final against Fiorentina next Wednesday, a huge fixture and moment for the club. And uh, someone I follow on Twitter, Connor Rowden, was making the point from quite early on in the season when everyone was pretty down at West Ham that the football club was still winning quite a lot of games not all of them in the league. So they've actually finished the season having played 56 games. Well, not finished the season as the case is, but so far, 56 games, 26 wins, 21 defeats and nine draws, scoring 13 goals more than they've conceded. So although it's a little crude just to look at wins, I think there's maybe merit to it because particularly for the fan base, they haven't had long periods where they haven't seen their team win. They've you know, they've been ticking off victories, just not necessarily in the sort of obvious and standard way. Yeah, I think they've had more wins in Europe this season than in the Premier League itself. And there was definitely a point where they'd matched, uh, I think it was in the quarterfinals, they'd matched their uh, Premier League goals uh, in Europe itself, obviously in in much fewer games. Uh, Their issue was largely goal scoring uh, in the first sort of part of the season. They seem to be playing more of a back three or a back five in Europe, playing a back four predominantly uh, in the Premier League, which is fascinating because I was trying to research it at one point and Moise said in a press conference, it wasn't tactical. I just needed minutes for players which I thought was quite funny that 
almost treated as a, an additional sort of pre-season or these games to, to get players up to speed. But it's been a case of adapting their signings that they that they brought in. Jean-Lucas Kamaka, I think, is hardly featured in the second half of the season. They tried to play him as sort of a, a more technical number nine and tried to evolve into more of a possession-based system. Um, Lucas Paqueta has been really sort of the, the key player, I think, towards the end of the season. Really good in sort of a deeper role, which he plays for Brazil. Sort of, I think West Ham said they sort of signed him as a number 10. Didn't realize he couldn't play number 10, which I think is amazing because you watch, obviously, Brazil and Neymar plays number 10 like that's not hard to <laughs> to work out but does that mean they signed both players with an idea of where they'd play and what they would do for this team that was essentially false or not the right way of using them I, I guess so I think it's always fair that you know you can sign a player as having done one thing in a specific team and they are very capable of adapting to do a different role so you'd hope and expect with the money they spent on these players that these you know weren't sort of five ten minute discussions these were well thought out things which again might come to fruition later down the line but there's a fascinating quote from Michel Antonio uh, on a podcast this week where he said about how difficult it was uh, and I'm quoting here that the last two years we've been close to the top four and we've just never achieved it and because we were so close to it the gaffer kind of changed how he wanted to play he wanted to switch it up so we made some quality signings, Paqueta, John Luca, to obviously so we can try and break through the thirds and work it way that way so we could play more like a top six team. But it just didn't work out for us. We kept pushing and pushing. We saw it wasn't working from November slash December time. It didn't work. They changed back to it and you sort of seen the, the games against Arsenal, the games against Manchester United at home where they've played really good transition football. Bowman scored a few towards the end of the season. I think the same can be said for Saeed Ben Rama. Um, so it's, again, it's interesting. I think similarly to Crystal Palace, we've seen teams try to evolve and sort of revert back and go back to that super strength. Just on that, the, the note of that podcast where Antonio was, was speaking and linking it back to Skamaka, I don't know if you guys have heard the, the quotes that he mentioned about Skamaka, which I thought were, were really interesting. And I've got some quotes myself. He said, he can't play the way the gaffer plays. Mm. He needs a different type of manager. He needs a manager who he can play and then have like other players who come off him and stuff like that. Like you can see that he, the ball comes into him, he sticks and he's tidy. Mm. Mm. But it, how David Moyes plays is more like, if you're up front, you're, you're dealing with scraps and you've got to be more of a fire. I don't know if that is kind of right player, wrong system or whatever it is, but it'd be interesting to see how Skamaka does next season for, for that reason. Those quotes from a, a podcast called The Filthy Fellas, which is an excellent name for a podcast and actually what I consider to be maybe the secondary name of this pod, uh, <laughs> but already used by someone else. Uh, let's move on to Arsenal. And their opponents on the 13th of August, Michael, were Leicester City. Uh, Arsenal finishing second in the end. Leicester City relegated. And perhaps surprisingly to them uh, as much as others. Uh, what were the key factors in this game? Well, an Arsenal win. I mean, Arsenal ended up being disappointed this season, but overall they had a fantastic campaign. They played some fantastic football. Um, I chose this because it was a, a big win, but also there are a couple of signs that twice in this game there were two goals ahead. And they were comfortable and then they let it slip and, le and Leicester got back into things. And that would, of course, become a bit of a theme of Arsenal's running. And from Leicester, I mean, they were mid-table in terms of goals scored. But I think third bottom or fourth bottom in terms of goals conceded. They're just Their defence has been awful all season. Just, you know, whether it was Rodgers or after Dean Smith came in, I, I think he probably didn't have enough time to fix things. But they they just don't protect the back four well enough. I think that the defenders themselves have made a lot of errors. Someone like Vuk Faz at the back has just made constant errors. I mean, obviously in that game against Liverpool when he scored two own goals kind of sums it up. Soyo and Chiu are kind of similar case when he's played. Um, so yeah, I think it summed up both teams pretty well. And Gabriel Jesus as well. Remember the first 10 games or so at the start of this campaign, he was just on fire. 
yeah, he was so key to the way that Arsenal playing at the, the start of the season. I think it was more of his all-round game that was so valued off and drift into half spaces, wide areas. And it wasn't necessarily his clinical finishing that, that was the case. And I did a sort of summary of all players and all teams for a piece last week. And he scored nearly four goals below expectation in terms of his expected goals. So he wasn't bought to be that clinical finisher, definitely for his all-round game. But it's interesting to see that it once again hasn't reached his expected goals tally. I want to I want to caveat what I'm about to say by saying there's absolutely no science behind this. But the, the, the longer the time goes by that we talk about and think about XG and finishing and players under and overperforming, the more a theory slowly develops in my head that players who have an incredible work rate and responsibility out of possession, challenge with centre-backs, etc., are essentially really tired when it comes to the, the moment of finishing. And given that finishing quality, as has been accepted for generations, comes a lot down to composure and through repeated movements and um, calmness in front of goal. It, it is a theory that I've been developing, I must say. And it, and, it, and it tracks relatively well if you pick out the bits that suit your narrative. <laughs> it was a big game for Granite Xhaka. He was moving into all sorts of areas in August that people weren't uh, used to seeing him play. And of course, that was a, a big feature of Arsenal's uh, first few months and their success. Xhaka scoring a, a lot of goals. As for Leicester, I mean, warning signs even at this early stage in the season. Liam, there's quite a lot to, to pick out from Leicester's season. One at the very start of it was their transfer business or lack thereof. I think at one point they were the only club in Europe not to have made a transfer. Uh, and then maybe latterly, the sacking of Brendan Rodgers, uh, whether or not that was the right or the wrong thing at the time, should have been done earlier or not at all. These are kind of the big questions, I think, looking back. Yeah, they were a weird case, not really making any signings, uh, but you still look at the squad and you feel like there's enough, definitely individual brilliance in there and enough talent, um, particularly with some of the forwards that you've got. Um, I think it's interesting enough that Harvey Barnes scored as many as he did and I think got one assist and he ended up with 13 goals, including one on, on the final day, which is a very weird amount for a winger that's not, you know, you sort of associate that as a, a number nine sort of return. But I think they just didn't replace key players, Kasper Schmeichel in particular, and they lost Fafana, of course, as well. And I think there's just a lot to be said for evolving a squad, particularly when you've been successful. I know they've come off the back of uh, having some success in terms of a, a high league finish, uh, in terms of obviously cup success, having played European football. And I think it's a kind of similar case that we've spoken about with Southampton before as well, where you can have a really good sort of sustained spell for two, three, four years, um, and you still got talent there but sometimes you do just need to change things um, and they then made that managerial change I think quite late in the season you sort of wonder should they have maybe gone a bit earlier <laughs> again we're speaking very much with sort of hindsight here but I think this is one that was interesting because a lot of people did have a lot of question marks in August before a ball was kicked saying that isn't a good thing sort of the, the lack of investment. I think there's research to show that the later in the, in the search for a manager bounce the later that you sack a manager or bring a new manager in the, the less return you, you really get but there's evidence from Nottingham Forest, West Ham and Bournemouth with Gary O'Neill, obviously not Scott Parker, that sticking with the manager can actually be more productive. And we've spoken at length on this podcast about the the utility of a manager and there's the whole um, debate around how much they do matter. But uh, I think the, the examples I gave, the Forest, West Ham and Bournemouth are an example kind of of a control study where not changing the manager also, you see a, an improvement off the back of it. And the overall performances were improve from those sides as well and I think that it's it's one of those where it can't get any worse so you're only going to go in an upwards trajectory. Also in August Manchester United beat Liverpool 2-1 
And at the end of the season, United finished above Liverpool for the second time in, in five years. Uh, Michael, to what extent did, did this result set the tone? And we can conveniently gloss over the fact that Liverpool ended up beating Man U 7-0 in the reverse. Ten points between them at that point, though. Yeah, I think this was a massive game. I mean, Manchester United had lost their first two of the season. They've been absolutely thrashed by Brentford. They weren't very good against Brighton on, on the opening day either. And I think that Ten Hag was actually under a bit of pressure here. And I think he did really well. He, he modified his approach a little bit. I think they were a little bit more cautious, uh, a little bit more reactive than Ten Hag would usually like to be. But when they did get the ball, they played some really good stuff. They switched the play very well. Lisandro Martinez, left-sided centre-back, was fantastic, having had a bit of a shaky start in English football. Um, and from Liverpool's perspective, they were particularly poor in the right-back zone. Alexander arnold I think, probably caught out a little bit for both goals. And of course, that has been a question mark about him before, but I think probably this is more so than ever. And of course, eventually that, that resulted in Klopp switching him into a different position, which we've done a podcast on recently. Um, and so, yeah, it felt to me quite symbolic of the fact that Manchester United would end up back in the top four and Liverpool would drop out. And let's, let's be honest, that was a big shock from the start of the season. Liverpool came very close to winning the title the previous year. So yeah, this was a bit of a symbolic result. Yeah, the second goal was quite symbolic as well um, from from Rashford. It's a goal that he scored repeatedly this season. Um, one of the things I looked at sort of going through the tactical trends in, in the piece that's on the site now is that three ball goals are up across the league this season compared to the last five years. And United are uh, completely top of that tree when you look at uh, shots, XG, goals from three balls. And Bruno Fernandes is, is the top creator from those situations. Admittedly, it was Martial threading the three ball there, but they had enough creators for Rashford this season, which is interesting because it feels like it's something United want to move away from, that there's probably a fair argument now that they're kind of a, playing a similar way in terms of success to what they were doing at their peak under under Ole with you know this counter-attacking play with you know Rashford scoring a, a high volume of goals and that's clearly something that isn't what Ten Hag wants to do or his philosophy they want to be more possession based but it's hard when your best player is this really good sort of direct runner clearly something that's wider across the Premier League because the trend has gone upwards but um, I don't think this is something that United should ever move away from in terms of their success it would feel really silly to completely ditch this thing that they're so so good at um, and it's interesting now looking ahead to the FA Cup final that this could be a way they might exploit Manchester City. United did have the most direct attacks of any Premier League um, side this season and again how it was symbolic of Liverpool's uh, season 40% of United's touches were down their left flank Liverpool's right so it showed that they were absolutely targeting uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold as well and I think even despite the scoreline. Allison did bail Liverpool out a couple of times within that game as well. Some fantastic saves. That um, his goals prevented rate was better than any uh, goalkeeper in the Premier League as well. So um, yeah, really indicative in that game so early in the season of how the rest of both of their seasons would pan out. Never heard so much symbolism in one game of football. <laughs> it's like, interesting. It's like Lord of the Flies out there back in August. Uh, well, tough scene for Trent that day and, and actually for much of the start of the season, but finished so strongly, of course, and in a new role, which you can hear all about on an episode on this very podcast feed back on the 11th of May. If you haven't listened to that one already, get it queued up for after this. Let's move on. Brentford won. Uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers won this one in October. And uh, Michael, I'm I'm going to misquote you and I apologise for it, but sharp intake of breath at uh, your phrasing when you introduced this one on the uh, on the article. What did you call them? Two, two of the more... Uh, irrelevant or unimportant teams of the season, something like that. But yeah, yeah be nice, man. You know, we're, we're all worthy in our own way. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I think Brentford should take that as a compliment because, you know, they were one of the favourites for relegation at the start of the campaign and they were just never really in 
contention for that at all. Wolves, of course, were and, and had a bit of a mid-season revival. But yeah, I must be honest, looking back over this season, probably two of the teams that I've I've watched the least of. But I quite like this game because the two goals were scored by both sides' best player, according to their supporters anyway, because Ben Mee won uh, Brentford's Player of the Season award and scored a brilliant left-footed volley in this game. And Wolves was won by Ruben Neves, who scored a, a brilliant long ranger in this game. So uh, yeah, not a particularly memorable game but uh, kind of fitted what I wanted to do. Yeah, as for Wolves, at, at this stage, this is the, the pre-Lopetegui uh, era. And, and his appointment, Liam, certainly guided them away from the choppy waters. Uh, what do you think he fixed? Sure, up the defence a little bit. I know their goal scored numbers still weren't fantastic, but eight of their 10 wins in all competitions uh, when he came in were with a clean sheet, which having a really good base to sort of build from. Um, I think they brought in Craig Dawson as well. They still weren't particularly fantastic or electric. You know, they've... Had issues, I think, particularly at number nine, sort of trying to, you know, replace Raul Jimenez um, and lacking Adama's creativity sometimes as well. So they've, they've got work to do to sort of refine the squad a bit more. I think they weren't phenomenal. They were good enough. So I'm intri- intrigued now to see what they do, uh, particularly ahead of next season. Yeah, I think to your point, Liam, they did need to shore up the defence because there was just very, very little going forward. No Premier League team scored fewer than Wolves this season, just 31 goals all season. So not even an average of a goal a game for the Wolves supporters to to see each time. Um, And yet in March, they had the unwanted quirk of going one year without a recognised centre forward scoring a goal in the Premier League. So um, lowest shot quality in the league, XG per shot of just 0.09. And they essentially were relying on Thunderbolts from Neves, which fortunately in this game, they they managed to. But he was there, I think I said this uh, last week on the pod, he was their most prolific shooter, which if you have Neves from midfield as your, your most prolific shooter, then there's something wrong. I tell you what, they are checking this in the VIR. Costa certainly locks horns with him. It's a tough call. He's taken a quick look. He's made the decision. And Diego Costa is playing the baddie in the Premier League again. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Okay, Southampton 1, Newcastle 4 in November. Michael Clubs that for many of the recent Premier League seasons would have been sort of pitched similarly or put in similar buckets in many ways. Uh, Now and in November, a sizable and obvious gap between them in in almost every way. 
Yeah, I think it works well for Southampton because they weren't actually dreadful here in terms of the XG, but they they just conceded more than they should have. And I think that was the theme of their season. Gavin Pizzuno, who I know uh, did very well out on loan from Manchester City in the EFL, I think two seasons in a row, but I think really struggled this season. I think it's a long time since I've seen a goalkeeper struggling so much. Maybe he'll still be a top-class goalkeeper, but he certainly wasn't this time around. Um, and for Newcastle, they were just fantastic this season. I mean, I think for them to get top four with this relatively modest quality of of squad and first team, and no disrespect to the likes of Dan Byrne and Joe Willick and Jacob Murphy, but for them to finish above Liverpool and Chelsea and Tottenham and the players they've got, I think they've been fantastic and it's been a real team effort. And I like the fact that the goals were scored in this game at Southampton by four different players, Almiron, Willock, Guimaraes and Chris Wood, who I must admit I kind of forgot was there in the first place. But uh, yeah, it kind of summed up both both team seasons. Did we learn anything about Southampton next season and, and just shreds of hope on final day where they had that remarkable game, didn't they, uh, Liam? And in particular, Camaldine Suleimana up front looked super lively. Yeah, he's he's always been a live wire of a player. He's really electric, really exciting, really unpredictable. But I think he's at his best 1v1. I, I saw more of him when he's playing in France um, than when he's played for Ghana internationally. Um, so I haven't seen a huge ton of him in Southampton. But he's always a player that when he does what he is trying to do effectively, it's going to look really good. It's going to make highlights real. But he has for a while needed to refine his output, as I think often happens with sort of wingers that, you know, you can be very high volume and quite sort of low output or low end product. So... I wouldn't be, you know, in a rush to sort of force him inside and into more of a sort of central role. Um, I think they probably do have more broad number nine issues, which to be honest, I think, um, you know, have been since sort of Danny Ings has left that they haven't really replaced that number nine and, and need a goal scorer. So I think they've got a few different um, young talents of, of different roles. We've spoken before about Lavia and, and other players there. So there'll be an effective team in there of young players, but how they go about organising that, um, I'm not sure just yet. I think on that note of having a goal scorer, Adam Armstrong scored in that chaotic final day uh, game. And he's such a weird one, having such strong seasons in the, the EFL that he scored 28 goals for, for Blackburn in his final season in the championship and then came to Southampton. I was thinking he's going to at least get 10 plus goals a season. I don't know if it's because he's he's too small. Maybe he's he's not maybe quite as fast against Premier League defenders, but he scored two in his first season at Southampton, two this season. And that was obviously the second one on the final day. Granted, he hadn't, didn't have as many minutes, um, but he just seems to have completely gone flat considering I thought he was going to be a strong Premier League player. Mm. Well, I think on... The team level, you, you have to acknowledge that the fact that he joined a, a club that was on the way down for the first time in a few years. But I would also agree with what you've suggested. I think his size is more of an issue in the Premier League than it is in the Championship. How many Premier League strikers have anything like that size profile? Zero, as far as off the top of my head. Shifting him out wide, well, he's not the sort of wide forward that we're talking about with Suleimana or other players like Isak who can play out there as well. Um, he was a guy who in the championship just took four or five shots a game, had a very powerful and a good strike on him and the goalkeepers are worse in the championship as well and you're not getting as many opportunities. So uh, I think a confidence aspect came into it as well where I think he missed a few chances early on when he was starting games. Um, you lose your spot pretty quickly in the Prem. Uh, basically, as far as I can tell, never really got the spot or, or maybe the confidence back. So I'd be hopeful that you know, if they can find a, a good role for him and if Russell Martin is the manager next season, I'm, I'm excited to see what he could do with this 
Southampton team uh, and he has had strikers who get good opportunities and score plenty of goals uh, in the last couple of seasons. So uh, I'm, I'm thinking a bit of a sort of reclamation project for, for Saints next season and could be a big player for them. Into February post-World Cup and the results take on greater significance, such as Nottingham Forest 1, Leeds United 0. Not that many points separated these two teams. In the end, uh, Michael Forrest getting the job done at home, big feature of their survival. Yeah, they had a dreadful away record, but they did win five games at home by a score of one goal to nil. And this was probably, I suppose, not one of the most memorable because they beat Liverpool, they beat Arsenal, but they started this game three points ahead of Leeds in the table, which I think is the perfect margin for a six-pointer. <laughs> nice. Ended it, obviously, six points clear, and they ended the season seven points clear of Leeds. So this was completely crucial. Um, and yeah, I... I a funny team for us. It was so difficult to get a hold, you know, get a hang of them in terms of having so many new new players. But three attackers, I'd say, had good seasons. Gibbs White, who we talked about last week. And when he scored, I think, four winners in 1-0 victories this season, just wow. didn't score that many, but constantly scored crucial goals. And the goal scorer in this game was Brennan Johnson, who I thought was just constantly an outlet, usually down the right kind of right channel, always really lively on the break. And overall, I think... It's funny, despite the fact that they kind of splashed the cash and there was something slightly, I thought slightly grubby about the way they went about their transfer business. But everyone seemed to quite like them and be quite pleased that they stayed up and they, they ended up, I think, a little bit of a neutral's favourite for, for one reason or another. So, yeah, Forrest stayed up, Leeds went down and this was a good game to show that. Not that many Leeds players, by comparison, particularly at the top end of the pitch, will leave with, with any sort of credit at the bank this season. Uh, famously, Rodrigo was in a couple of your alternative teams of the season last week. But outside of him, uh, both in terms of goal scoring and, dare I say, even in terms of creating chances as individuals, leads massively off it this season. Uh, and, and players like Nonto we saw flashes of and then didn't seem to be trusted in the relegation fight. No, which is interesting. Um, I guess it's also possibly dependent on you know who, who the person in charge is that uh, I, th I thought Harry Graffio was quite unlucky to be honest to lose his job he made a quite fair point about when you compare the points they had in those games to the teams around them that um, they got more than I think the likes of Everton than Leicester so you know they they weren't outstanding but it, it felt like a constant you know repeat of what happened under Marsh when he came in last season which was you know it was termed a band-aid project or something to survive keep them there um and to be fair, I think they've done the exact same as Everton, where they didn't then really change and evolve and fix the problems that they had before, and then ended up sort of in the same position again. And it's telling because obviously this is one of the, I think it's the first season since 2017-18 where the three promoted teams have all survived, which is, I think, always just quite endearing and quite good fun that we like the idea that, you know, all these teams can come up and in three very different ways can can survive and Leeds again have conceded an awful lot of goals, which is not groundbreaking. We all know it, but you're sort of like, you know, something needs to change there. Even when they took out Ilan Melia, who had a real sort of torrid period of form towards the end of the season, I don't think he's a particularly bad keeper. I think he was in a really, really bad spell. It was quite telling against Fulham, actually, when they went there. And I think Fulham didn't complete a cross in the whole game. They didn't have Mitro playing, but scored twice from crosses because Melia flapped at both of them. So they've got a lot of bigger problems. Obviously, all the stories have come out today about they're on the pitch issues a small percentage of what is wrong at that club currently. So it's uh, it feels like a lot of things are just on fire there, to be honest, and not in a good way. 
yeah, I think there's going to be a massive squad clear out, isn't there? And I think there's some players who are probably still good enough to play in the Premier League if they're in a, a better system. I think Nonto is a, an interesting one. He's only 19 years old as well. So I think he's very, very raw in his actions. But I, I spoke to John McKenzie about this, John McKenzie of TIFO, of course, and very ardent uh, Leeds fan. And he said that he's a little bit suspect out of possession, um, which is maybe where he was taken out of the team when obviously Leeds needed results and to, to kind of stay in the game um, but we know how much of a dribble machine Nonto is I looked into the numbers on this and he averaged 5.6 take-ons per 90 which put him in the top 10 dribblers in the Premier League but he only completed 25% of those take-ons across the season which is comfortably the lowest of, of anyone within that top 10 so one in four you're giving up possession quite often with your actions and you're not too disciplined out of possession you can kind of see why towards the end of the season when Leeds needed results that he would be taken out of the team yeah, the, the squad on the final day was quite telling the starting eleven. I think it was six or seven defenders that they lined up with and yet mm. conceded inside the opening minutes of both halves. And even the first goal is not, you know, it's not for the set piece, it's not a piece of individual brilliance. They genuinely get carved apart despite playing a back five and, you know, supposedly having the numbers back to defend that exact type of chance. So they need a long, long hard look, I think, about where they want to go from there and how they want to play going forward. Everton and Aston Villa are paired up here. A 2 0 win for Villa at Goodison Park in February. And Michael, and more broadly, managerial changes impacting things for both of these teams. Certainly disappointing spells for, for Steven Gerrard, for Frank Lampard. Can they thrive in the same England midfield in the 2000s? Maybe not. Can they both thrive as Premier League managers on this evidence? Maybe not. Um, Sean Dyche and Unai Emery came in. Villa finished two places above Everton last season, 10 places above them this season. Yeah, and two managers in a way who I think are kind of similar. I mean, one's renowned for winning Europa Leagues, one's renowned for keeping sides up. So not in terms of achievements, but they're just very solid. They get their sides disciplined. They're, they're not managers really speak of in terms of attractive football, but uh, kind of tend to do the job quite well. And of course, Villa fared better. I think the appointment of, of Emery was maybe the most transformative of any in the Premier League this year. Per the numbers as well, yeah, it is. The, the highest position change of any manager to come in, they went from 17th to 7th. And the nearest after that was five places, which was Lopetegui going from 18th to 13th. So backs up what you say, yeah. And uh, and in terms of Villa, this was when Ollie Watkins was really on fire, like his, his purple patch of the season uh, scored in this game. Uh, I think Buendia was very involved as well. Every time I watch Villa, Buendia is just really clever. The positions he takes up, the, the way he links. Uh, he can play kind of as, as a support forward or from one of the wider roles in the box midfield, which I think suits him really well. So yeah, this, this game kind of summed up the uh, different trajectories of both teams. I was actually in the press box for this game, which was, was quite good fun. Um, my, de my debut in, in a press box. Um, Everton were really good, actually, the first 20 minutes, half an hour. They pressed really, really high, which is, I think, a feature in their earlier games under Dyche. I think most people remember their standout game at the end of the season was winning 5-1 at the Amex and transitioning really well out of a mid-block. But they pressed high an awful lot of the time and really sort of pushed the wingers up. They were really, really good. Pinned Villa in um, really quite well. But their problem was sort of evident in the starting 11 that uh, the starting 11 combined uh, had just eight goals, which was, I think at the time, Ollie Watkins and uh, I think it was Leon Bailey started together and had about 15 between them or definitely more than that. Um, and yet they just kept crossing all game. Obviously, they didn't have Calvert-Lewin playing, which was the big issue, but they had 35 crosses. And there were a couple of chances. I think Anana had a header early on over the bar. They had a couple of chances of set pieces, but it was that same old story of 
actually doing quite well to win the ball back um, and, and you know be fairly hard to break down to start with and then couldn't really create anything. And that showed on the final day, I think, with the goal they did score being an absolute screamer, not a, a high quality chance. But I guess the problem comes when you've pressed high for that long, you start to get tired, you can't do it all game. Um, the first goal they concede is a penalty, just a, a poor decision in the box um, off of a throw. And the second goal is really, really good hold-up play from Ollie Watkins, who I think we associate a lot with running the channels really well. Um, and he's been really good at this season, but his technical play back to goal, I think he's a really good, well-balanced forward. Um, and, and Villa's system just shone in the second half with those, yeah, that, that box midfield flying. Given that we are interested in, among other things, uh, football managers, uh, football playing styles, and the terminology that we use when we talk about football, we have to mention something that Sean Dyche said after the last game of the season when talking about what the club needs and what he'll bring. One word in particular I need Michael's thoughts on. He said, we need to get the fans connected to what we are as a team, to what I am as a manager. Then there will be a day when a fashionista can come in <laughs> and we'll have a beautiful product. But what we need now is a rawness, a heartbeat Evertonians can grip to. He could be a fashionista, couldn't he? <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, it's interesting that he acknowledges that there will be a time where they want better football. I almost thought he'd shy away from that. But uh, the fact that he almost speaks of himself as not a caretaker manager, but a kind of not a long-term manager, I think is quite, it's quite telling, really. Chelsea won Brighton 2 in April. This one really fell into your lap as the writer, didn't it? The Graham Potter derby without him in either dugout. I could have chosen either, actually, because of the Amex. Uh, Brighton won 4-1. That was De Zerbi's first winner's manager. Obviously, Potter was there. But in a way, that was... The fact it was De Zerbi's first win, it meant it was slightly out of the blue, in a way. Whereas I think this just felt inevitable. You know, Brighton were playing such good football by this point. And I think I almost won't really remember Chelsea's season for Potter. I'll remember it really for the fact that they'd been through Tuchel, Potter briefly caretaker of Bruno and then Lampard bizarrely just backing caretaker charge and even though Brighton went 1-0 down in this game this this game wasn't on TV I don't think but I watched it back the full 90 minutes and Brighton were just really in control for the majority and you were just so sure and so confident that they would win and I mean we've done a pod or you guys did a pod about Brighton there about a month ago it was really good but the sense I get from Brighton at the moment is it doesn't really matter who plays you know, they've got so many players who can come in and out. And that was the case here. I think Ferguson started and went off injured and Welbeck came on um, and both did the job really, really well. Welbeck got on the score sheet. And I think you can tell, you know, a manager's really working well when regardless of the players he uses almost, they still play this, the same style of football. And that was the case here. Yeah, Ahmed Ali did a great breakdown of this game on the site for anyone that wants to see it all sort of analysed. And one of the, the big points was something that Brighton did a lot in the second half of the season, which was obviously Jason Steele came in for Robert Sanchez in goal. Uh, and a lot of the focus and the analysis has been on the really short build-up, you know, building through the thirds, building through the double pivot. But it's generally just been, because teams are now pressing man for man and when Ferguson will drop deeper, often he's dragging a centre-back um, high up the pitch the wingers will stay high and wide and still has just repeatedly started kicking it long to Karim Matoma running in behind. He assisted him against Brentford, which is always a great sight to see. Uh, keep getting assists, but uh, I think it was in the build-up to the equaliser that there was one of those sort of trademark long balls in behind because Matoma is just so quick. Um, and it's the same thing that works really well against Arsenal. Um, and it's just an interesting wrinkle and an evolution point, I think, of, you know, a, a manager wants to come in and play a certain way and when teams sort of start not solving it, but they have, um, you know, more ways of 
answering the problem and, and adapting to it, the other solutions just present themselves. And, and I thought that was a real sort of standout point um, as a tactical sort of quirk from the game. And it, it was a theme of Brighton's season to be good against big six teams. I think only Brentford had more points there um, and they scored plenty of goals and most goals, I think, against big six teams. So it's a real evolution for where they've been in previous seasons um, and it makes you look forward to next season in that regard. Mid-April, Tottenham 2, Bournemouth 3, Coxie. Uh, this was perfect microcosm of the second half of the season really for both teams and, and also has a nice little dash of, of caretaker management with Gary O'Neill in the dugout by this time permanent but had, had to do 12 games of interimming and uh, Stellini who only got four before he was sacked off. Yeah, Paul Stellini, I gather he's a really nice guy and a really good training ground coach but as a manager I just thought he seemed really out of his depth. And these sides played each other twice obviously and they both finished 3-2 to the away side with a last minute goal. And yeah, this this sums up why they were at, at that moment in time. I mean, it's mad to think the first half of the season, Spurs were actually doing all right. They were kind of broadly on course for Champions League places. Bournemouth, we thought, were, were doomed. I mean, the 9-0 loss at Anfield, the squad just didn't seem that good. And yet Tottenham fell way short of their expectations. And Bournemouth were actually pretty comfortable. I mean, it was this win really that borderline confirmed the fact they were going to stay up. So yeah, it had a bit of everything, but um, I think really just Tottenham self-destructing a little bit. And I mean, just in terms of the fact there were so many goals, I mean, Tottenham's season featured more than 60 goals scored and more than 60 goals conceded. The first time that's happened for 15 years in the Premier League since Tottenham did it themselves. So uh, yeah, a bit of everything in this game, but a, a really memorable one. I enjoyed Bournemouth's back three. Uh, they've done it quite a few times, I think, against some of the, the bigger teams. It's sort of something we've seen with Brentford as well in the past couple of seasons having that adaptability to say you know we'll try and be a bit more possession heavy against sort of uh, lower quality teams but against some of the, the bigger boys and I guess to be fair that matches up Spurs they were the only team and I went through um, that I think predominantly played a back three this season it's been on a real sort of increase uh, sort of throughout the 2010s the back three but back fours are really a high sort of a, across the season and uh, Dango Watara was the match winner in this game um, with a really funny celebration I was amazed he did such a quick knee slide after scoring um, <laughs> yeah but I thought he was really, really good as a January signing from Lorient. Um, a really good dribbler, added some quality to that attack. Um, obviously, Solanke had a really creative role and, and Bidding was more of the goal scorer, um, which is maybe the other way around than what we expected. And we spoke about that, I think, uh, in last week's pod. But yeah, I thought adding in more firepower, they played on the break a lot, particularly with the back five where you need to hit players quickly in transition. Um, so that, that was a really smart buy. Um, he had the second most shots and chances created of a Bournemouth player after his debut in January, uh, the most crosses and the most dribbles. So uh, a very good addition there. I mean, yeah, you mentioned Solanke there. I think that this this game was representative probably more of his second half of the season. You know, he had a goal and assist in this, this game and he's played well more or less all season. But I think... Bournemouth fans appreciate him for a lot of the sort of selfless work that he does. He links the midfield and attack really well. He holds up the play really well. He's got really good close control. I think people kind of underestimate him on. He's really strong in in holding the ball up and often carrying and dragging Bournemouth up the field. And as you say, Liam, it's often him that provides for Billing making those sorts of late runs. Comparing someone between the Championship and the Premier League again, his sort of lack of efficiency in front of goal still needs improvement within the Premier League. But then... It's interesting, Ali, you've obviously reported a lot on, on him, I guess, the season before last now, that he scored 29 goals in the championship. You know, evidence of multiple players doing that can't quite translate that to the Premier League. I, I suppose it's different to the Armstrong example, but if he adds goals, more goals to, to his game, then he'll be maybe looking for a move to a bigger Premier League club. Well, it's interesting to note that in terms of um, pressing, counter-pressing and things of that ilk, Slanky is... Uh 
right up there with Premier League strikers, doing a lot of work, putting in a lot of work out of possession and maybe in front of goal, he's just a little tired. <laughs> maybe that wasn't so much the case last season when Bournemouth were you know, one of the more dominant teams in, in that division compared to in the Premier League. So no, it, it's really interesting. I'm really pleased with him. He, you get this sometimes where the narrative that gets built around a player is just unfair and is focusing on the wrong things or is heightening issues for reasons that are either out of the player's control or just don't matter that much. So, you know, by the time he dropped down to the championship with Bournemouth, he's only like 20, 21 years old. He's already being judged to completely different standards than any other 20, 21-year-old English striker, partly because of his storied youth career, partly because there was an unusual move from Chelsea to Liverpool, and partly, maybe mostly, because of the reporting that surrounded that around agents and greed and salaries and things that really don't matter when you're trying to analyse a, a young footballer, in my opinion. So I just remember thinking he dropped down to the championship and there was this sense of he's a bit of a busted flush, like he's never going to make it. And I just couldn't get my head around it. <laughs> I couldn't see how anyone would have looked what he had done as a player at that point and thought anything other than, wow, wouldn't it be great if he could keep developing and get some confidence and some goals under his belt? Because shock horror, this is a guy that can score. Uh, this is a guy that on top of that has loads of other aspects to his game, including work rate out of possession, ability to disrupt defenders in possession, decent physicality, if not the best at, at the level, and and also a, a smartness to his game that involves bringing others into play. So uh, I'm really pleased to see him continuing to, to thrive and develop and that the Bournemouth fans really appreciate him as well because you know we talked about confidence when it comes to Adam Armstrong and the way that fans are talking about you and praising you makes a big difference to that I think so uh, yeah certainly one of my uh, favorite players from the championship the last few years uh, we finish up with Fulham 2 Crystal Palace 2 in May Michael this is perfect isn't it a team that finished 10th and 11th and a draw yeah exactly these were the last two teams and I was I was quite pleased to discover that was the result between them uh quite like the fact that this features a Mitrovic penalty although he did actually score it because he ended up missing four this season, which is <laughs> hmm, obviously the most in Premier League history. And another reason why I like this game is that it pretty—it was the penultimate game of the campaign, so it pretty much confirmed my favourite stat of the season, which is that the top half of the Premier League ended with a positive goal difference and the bottom half ended with a negative goal difference, which is the first time in the Premier League era that has happened. I've never heard anything more Michael Cox than that. That is really... A bit of you. I do a love, lot of you. I love goal difference. I really like, I think it's the most underrated stat in football. It's brilliant. There's also another similar quirky stat that I think this is the first time since somewhere in the mid-2000s that every single team has finished on a different points tally. Um, so no one's got a, a matching points tally. That is good. And Duncan's uh, stat that he sort of teased before final day about there being more... Unique scorelines. More unique scorelines. Yeah. And I think a few of these things, probably the thing I said about goal difference and that unique scorelines thing, links to the basic fact that it was the season in the Premier League with the most goals. Mm. So this game sums that up, you know, four goals. A great season. Well, the, the first half of the campaign, Fulham were absolutely magnificent, weren't they? And and you have to say, in the last few months of the campaign, Crystal Palace really came to play under under Roy Hodgson and, you know, him having been kind of, well, his his good name having been somewhat besmirched by... Patrick Vieira's success early on and and the narrative being so strongly that it was down to style of play and giving these attacking players more, you know, longer leash to do what they do and the best that Eber Eze and Michael Elise have played has been under Roy Hodgson. I was listening to uh, the Overlap podcast with Gary Neville where he went and spoke to Steve Parrish and Roy Hodgson and I think 
as much as we like to talk tactics, one of the biggest takeaways I, I found from it was that Roy is, is said by Steve Parrish to be the best person he knows of um, through all of his years of, of coaching management at communicating with players because he's worked with so many of them that he knows the right thing to say, when to say it, how to say it. Because I guess when you come in that late into a season, you haven't really got time to overhaul the tactics completely. You might be able to coach a little bit of shape Ironically enough, he said the first session they did was attacking, that he gets really bored and doesn't like the defensive stuff. He said he finds it easier to do. But first thing they went in, went in and did was they did some attacking patterns. They did some finishing training. And obviously that shows with just the sheer amount of goals that they scored. And um, I just thought it was fascinating to hear that because I think if you asked you know, a, a bunch of people in a room, you asked us, oh, what do you think they did in their first session? How do you think they approached it? I don't think we'd have said that. So I thought that was that was interesting. Yeah, I know it's, uh, it's boring to always talk about Roy Hodgson's age, but I do think for a 75-year-old to connect with players in their early 20s is is quite remarkable. I mean, if you chuck me in a room with, with 10, 10 people at that age, I'd probably feel quite out of, out of my depth. We got but, one here. <laughs> but there was a really interesting, I thought a brilliant interview, a joint interview with Hodgson and David Moyes before the Palace West Ham game on BT Sport about a month ago. And it was really interesting because they, I think they're the two oldest managers in the Premier League. And one of the things they, they both said or they both agreed on was that they find it easier to deal with players these days than than before. I don't know whether that's they're more professional, they're more kind of tactically inclined, they can take in information better. But I think there's that kind of goes against maybe the narrative we used to hear. And I think the general impression that players these days are prima donnas and they're too fussy and they're difficult to pin down. They said the opposite. They, you know, they said it's much easier these days. So yeah, that was a nice interview worth seeking out if you haven't seen it. I felt like there was a, quite a pleasing undercurrent to that, which was kind of like, yeah, when I first started, you know, most of the players had a hangover most mornings. Yeah. It was a bit of a burden to try and, you know, dredge up some enthusiasm. I also like the fact that the two oldest managers in the league did that wonderful and very rare sort of co-interview uh, that was kind of based on that. 15 years between them. Yeah, not, exactly. not a similar age, basically, in any other I way. I don't think of Moyes as old at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's like in the, in the EFL, you've got Neil Warnock and Mick McCarthy. Um, and they are similarly packaged up as the old boys. And Mick McCarthy cleaned Warnock's boots as an apprentice when Warnock was a senior wow. player at, uh, at Barnsley. So uh, there you go. Um, smashed out of the park, Coxie, with the piece. And it's been really, really fun to to use it as uh, as the basis for the pod. Thank you so much to Liam and, and to Mark as well for uh, adding some some goodness. I noticed that you didn't write about any cup games. For example, you didn't write about Southampton 2, Manchester City nil in the Carabao Cup quarterfinal, which, as everyone will remember, was the start of Nathan Jones's transformative reign at <laughs> Southampton and Pep City's incredible implosion. No, that script was rejected, wasn't it? That was rejected, thrown in the bin. Were there any games, maybe in notable games in European football that we can look at as being on that platform, games that gave us a taste of what might be to come? I thought Napoli-Liverpool early in the season in the Champions League in the group stage was... I'll be honest, very surprising at the time. I think we were all taken aback, at least I was. I hadn't seen too much of, of Napoli. Um, but yeah, that was a really sort of dominant, um, electric, but also fluid and, and incisive first half attacking performance. Um, and Guisa with that goal in particular, where, you know, they sort of really carved their way through and I know they'd go on to sort of top the scoring charts in uh, in the group stages. But that was the way they then continued to play in, in Serie A. And they didn't end up sort of smashing the records in Serie A that it looked like they might be able to at one point. But they won the league, you know, without anyone really coming close to them. And I think that at times, as we've seen with uh, City and Arsenal in the Premier League, you maybe need second base to push you to to really break records. Um, so that that sort of four three three with the, the two eights pushing forward and you know rotations. It was fluid. It was dynamic. It was it was just really really enjoyable to watch. It was stylish football. 
Great. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for, for listening and continuing to listen to us. You are doing so in record numbers at the moment. Uh, you're giving us some some really uh, nice vibes to finish this season with. So thank you so much for supporting the pod. And please continue to do so. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast feed and to The Athletic as well, where you can read everything that Liam, Michael and Mark are writing. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics, the best place to go if you need to sign up today and if you'd like a, a discount on your annual subscription. We've got two more podcasts left of the season and we very much hope that you'll join us for them on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic.